Do any of you remember episode one when y'all first heard me talk about Ed Gein? How he was in part the inspiration for Leatherface, Psycho, and Silence of the Lambs? Well, it turns out he wasn't the only inspiration. We only wish that the idea that a person could kidnap and torture multiple young women and keep them captive in a homemade pit dug in his basement could only be the product of the darkest minds in Hollywood. But unfortunately, as time has shown over and over again, even the darkest content that you can put in a feature film was still based or inspired by something true. There wouldn't be multiple franchises about mass killers if it wasn't for the Zodiac. We might not even be familiar with the trope of the psychopath who wipes out neighborhood teenagers at night if Ted Bundy or the Gainesville Ripper hadn't done it first. Hell, Stephen King might have never introduced us to Bob Gray, aka Pennywise the Dancing Clown, if it wasn't for John Wayne Gacy. And so it is with Gary Heidnick, who partially inspired the character Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. Gary, to me, is one of the worst I've covered or considered covering so far. Almost nothing in this episode is safe for work or appropriate for young minds. When I first started this podcast, I generated a long list of topics that I knew were relevant to the intended theme, but I was only ever familiar with some of them in a minor capacity. I also wanted to avoid covering murderers or crimes that everyone knew about already, such as Charles Manson, Richard Ramirez, or Ted Bundy. I wanted to talk about something that you wouldn't easily learn about on a Netflix special. So... When Gary's name came up, I honestly didn't know much about him, only that he belonged on my list. It was only during my research that I found out exactly why he was on my list in the first place, and, real talk, once or twice, I considered swapping him out for another topic entirely. So as much as I'd probably prefer to put it off, let's all take a moment and acknowledge that we're going to hear some stuff that'll cause most of us to shake our heads in disgust and mutter what the fuck under our breath more than a few times. Welcome back to The Human Delicatessen, and without further ado, let's talk about Gary Heidnick. Gary Michael Heidnick was born on November 22, 1943, in Eastlake, Ohio, to his parents Michael and Ellen Heidnick. Problems within the marriage would result in Michael and Ellen divorcing just two years later, Part of the reasoning would involve Michael being charged with gross neglect of duty regarding Gary and his younger brother Terry. Ellen had a fairly significant drinking problem as well, and it only seemed to get worse after the divorce. Unable to care for Gary and his brother because of her alcohol dependency, they were both sent to live with their father in Philadelphia, who, according to the siblings, was no better as a parental figure, being mentally abusive to his sons often including humiliating Gary in public for having a prolonged issue with wetting the bed. Although antisocial and a bit of a loner, Gary did well academically in high school, and when tested, he was found to have an IQ of 148. Michael, impressed with his son's academic potential, enrolled Gary at the Staunton Military Academy in Virginia when he was 14, but he only stayed for two years until he dropped out before completion joining the Army soon after in 1961 where he would receive above-average marks during boot camp, but would be rejected from several specialist positions, including the military police. He was finally accepted for the position as a medic, and was sent to Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio for training. After his training was complete, he was posted at a military hospital in East Germany in May of 1962, but would soon afterwards start having issues with headaches, nausea, 
dizziness, and intermittently impaired vision. During subsequent checkups, he was diagnosed by a base neurologist as showing symptoms of mental illness. His medical record that lists his mental illness has been sealed and is not available to the public, but it is suggested that he suffered from a form of schizoid personality disorder. Ultimately, he was deemed unfit for continued service and found himself back stateside by October of that same year at a military hospital in Pennsylvania to undergo a three-month psychotherapy. Gary was eventually discharged honorably with a 100% disability rating for which he would receive a little under $1,400 monthly and for more or, rest, more or less the rest of his life, Gary would be in and out of mental health institutions for weeks or months on end with little to no improvement. His brother Terry would also have his own struggles with mental health, spending time in institutions as well as attempting suicide on multiple occasions. In 1964, Gary signed up for a 12-month technical nursing school, followed by a six-month internship at Philadelphia General Hospital. For a while, Gary would use that training to work at a Veterans Administration in Coatesville until he was let go due to repeated problems with his punctuality and poor treatment or attitude when working with his patients. But Gary was good at saving money, and in 1967 he was able to afford a three-story house. He would then convert two floors into two separate lofts, which he would rent out for additional income, keeping the bottom floor and the basement for himself. Gary had multiple sources of income around this time, various and sometimes brief nursing positions, his disability pension, and landlord duties. He would still find time to volunteer at the nearby Elwyn Institute, which caters to the needs of those who are developmentally disabled. Gary would seem to be particular about what type of patients he would spend the most time with, preferring black and Hispanic females. By his own admittance later on, he would talk about taking the women out to picnics, movies, and shopping trips sometimes, and would often attempt to take them home to his house for sex. If any of the women ever complained to the staff about what he was doing with them, they were either ignored or never acknowledged. Quite randomly, but I imagine quite well planned out for Gary, he started his own church around that time, the Church of the Ministries of God, in 1971, with a congregation that was initially made up from the small number of those who were staying at the Elwyn Institute. He also seemed to be slipping mentally around 1976, when he barricaded himself in the basement of his building with a couple of firearms, threatening to shoot his tenants if they dared to come down in person to make a complaint about the property or the space that they were renting. At one point, one of them did go down there to confront Gary, and he responded by shooting them in the face, luckily only causing a superficial wound to the tenant. Gary was, unsurprisingly, arrested for aggravated assault, but the charges were later dismissed because the tenant had apparently tried to forcefully enter Gary's basement through a window, which gave Gary more or less the right to open fire. Not long after that whole ordeal, Gary ended up selling the property to a university professor who later, while cleaning up the property, found huge collections of pornographic magazines, as well as putrid garbage cans and an untold number of empty 22 rifle shelves in the attic and in Gary's former living space. He also discovered in the basement an 18-inch hole in the concrete floor with a crude crawl space cleared out underneath about three feet deep and five feet long, big enough for one person to lie in. Gary was quick to recover his financial losses, 
because in 1977 he invested $35,000 in the stock market and was able to get a return of up to half a million over the following 10 years. With some of that money, he purchased for himself a collection of high-end luxury vehicles, a Rolls-Royce, a Cadillac, Lincoln Continental, and a fully customized van. He was able to dodge paying taxes on the vehicles because at the time of their purchase, he claimed them on his taxes as property of his aforementioned church, for which he was the sole clergy member. After moving from his three-story home, he moved to another residence across town, and he would begin having a romantic relationship with an illiterate, developmentally disabled woman, Anjanette Davidson. Anjanette gave birth to his daughter Maxine in March of 1978, who, for one reason or another, was placed in a foster home almost immediately after her birth. Just a few months later, Gary and Anjanette drove to another mental institution to pick up her sister Alberta for a day outside of the property. However, they didn't return Alberta at the end of the day, and a few weeks later, she was found by the authorities in Gary's basement, filthy and abused. Gary was arrested for rape, kidnapping, and sexual deviant intercourse, endangerment, unlawful restraint, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. Alberta, who had been committed for the past 20 years of her life, had the IQ of a three-year-old. Gary himself was hospitalized the following year, prolonging his trial, but still ended up having a sentence of three to seven years in prison, released after serving four years and being paroled in 1983. During his imprisonment, he was taken to a mental institution on at least three separate attempts of suicide, including once where he ate the glass shards of a broken beer light bulb. After his release, which I think is safe to say should not have been allowed to happen, Gary purchased another home in Philadelphia, putting a sign out front advertising services for his one-man church. He also hired a man named Cyril Brown, a mentally disabled black man who would work as Gary's handyman and do various chores around the property. In 1985, Gary would pick up a 26-year-old prostitute, Josefina Rivera, who, after soliciting her for sex, he held against her will by choking her until she passed out, and she found herself in a small pit in his basement, very much like the one that was made in his previous home. He would keep a board over the small opening in the floor, usually weighing it down with several bags of concrete. There, she would stay in complete darkness between the times that he would rape her. He would also only allow her to subsist on bread and water, and would occasionally give her what he would call a treat if she behaved, which was nothing more than canned dog food. By December, Gary had kidnapped other women for his collection, one of which was another mentally disabled woman, Sandra Lindsay, who was, a bit, who was a friend of his handyman, Cyril. He would keep Sandra chained to an overhead beam in the basement, treating her to the same regiment of torture and rape as he did with Josefina, only giving her food that had already been spoiled. By that Christmas, he had abducted 19-year-old Lisa Thomas. By January, 18-year-old Jacqueline Askins. Gary started playing a sadistic game with his prisoners, conditioning them to inform on the others if they should misbehave when he wasn't around. Punishments would range from beatings, starvation, sensory deprivation, and rudimentary electric shock. He would, in some of these situations, also use a screwdriver to per attempt to permanently damage their eardrums in order to make them deaf so they wouldn't be able to talk to each other when he wasn't around. 
Sometimes, Gary would tell them of his plans for gathering at least 10 women in total, making them all mothers to as many children as he could manage before he died or was captured. To add even more insanity to his already insane story, while all of this was going on in his basement, upstairs, Gary was carrying on a marriage to Betty Disto, a woman originally from the Philippines who he had met from a pen pal relationship around the time. After her arrival from the Philippines and a hasty marriage ceremony, he would immediately start to bring other women home for sex, encouraging or coercing his wife to participate. His wife had left him in 1986, barely a year after they had wed, claiming that he would rape and assault her and force her to watch him fornicate with other women, usually prostitutes. Eventually, Betty would flee from the house with the help from the Filipino community in the area, and based on the report to the authorities, Gary would be booked on charges of indecent assault, spousal rape. Betty, however, would fail to appear in court, so unfortunately, criminal charges were dropped. No word was ever said on whether or not she was aware of what was going down in the basement at the time. Most likely, she didn't, although it's difficult to understand how. Unbeknownst to Gary, Betty was also pregnant with his child when she had left him, and he didn't become aware of that until she made a paperwork requesting child support the following year. Her son, he named, she named John Jacob Disto. Meanwhile, down in his basement dungeon, Sandra Lindsay wouldn't be able to withstand the constant torture she received on a daily basis. In 1987, after hanging by her arms from the rafters for several days in her malnourished state, she succumbed to her injuries. Gary forced Josephina to help him bring Sandra's body upstairs to a bathtub where he would dismember the remains with a power saw. The parts that he couldn't adequately dispose of, he would grind up and wrap in the freezer, labeling them as dog food, which he would supposedly grind up and mix with the actual dog food, which he would feed to his prisoners. He would also attempt to cook some of the pieces in pots of water in order to render them, render them down so he could flush them down the drainage. At one point, his neighbors called the police to complain about the odor emanating from his house. When the cops showed up, he told them simply that he was attempting to cook a roast, but he had accidentally fallen asleep and overcooked it. Amazingly, the police bought the story and didn't bother Gary any further for a while. In actuality, what was cooking in Gary's oven was the upper torso of Sandra Lindsay. Sandra's spot in the basement would soon be replaced by Deborah Dudley in March of 87, but when she refused to cooperate with Gary's demands, he hooked wires from the stripped end of an extension cord onto the chains that bound her and forced her to stand in a pit of water, electrocuting her until she died. Not even a month after she was abducted, Gary would drive her body into the woods somewhere around Camden, New Jersey and dump it in the brush, once again making Josephine help him. Gary's fantasy world started to crumble when, after kidnapping Agnes Adams in March 23rd, Josephine managed to convince him to let Agnes visit her parents so they might not come looking for her later. Gary, in a shocking and equally fortunate display of ignorance and trust, dropped Agnes off at a nearby gas station the same day and let her walk to her parents' home on foot. Agnes wasn't about to let her luck go to waste, so she immediately walked a few blocks away down the street and then found a place to call the police to her location. 
After the police arrived and they noticed the wounds on her legs and wrists from the shackles she'd been made to wear, they went to the gas station where Gary was waiting and arrested him, as well as Cyril Brown, who was also in the vehicle at the time. After his arrest, a search was conducted on Gary's house. Police discovered that entire walls of his house were roughly wallpapered with dollar bills and coins glued to the walls and other surfaces throughout the building. Some of Sandra Lindsay's remains were found in a deep freezer as well. When they made their way to the basement, they found the three remaining surviving women, Josephina Rivera, Lisa Thomas, and Jacqueline Askins, all chained up and emaciated, having no clothes on them except for some filthy oversized shirts. Their sleeping areas were a couple of Gary's custom pits that he had dug into the soil underneath the basement floor and covered with sheets of wood covering the entry hole with heavy objects as before. Authorities would also later discover human remains that he had attempted to flush down the drains. The already busy day wasn't over yet, as Josephina also gave police the information they needed to recover Deborah's body. When Gary was taken into custody, his bond was set at $4 million, and he was hospitalized in April after an unsuccessful suicide attempt when he tried to hang himself from a shower stall. Cyril Brown was released on $50,000 bail and signed an agreement to testify against Gary since Cyril had actually been present for Sandra Lindsay's murder and also witnessed her dismemberment. Some leniency was also granted to Cyril due to his own diminished mental capacity. Gary's defense attorney attempted to plead an insanity case claiming that Gary's behavior had been the result of him being the victim of a government conspiracy in which he was force-fed LSD in the 60s, similar to the MKUltra experiments. But the jury didn't buy it, and he was convicted of double murder on July 1, 1988. The courts weren't finished with him, however. Accompanying the charge was six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggravated assault, and one count of deviant sexual intercourse. And, and just in case you're wondering how rape differs from deviant sexual intercourse, the latter pertains specifically to forced intercourse of the mouth or the anus. Two days after his conviction, he was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Gary attempted an insanity plea, but several witnesses were able to convince the jury that, to some effect, since Gary was able to successfully earn over half a million dollars in smart investments and make sound financial decisions, he was too astute and self-aware to be considered insane at any point in committing his crimes. Gary again attempted suicide some six months later on New Year's Eve in 1988 when he overdosed on Thorazine, an antipsychotic medication that he had been cheeking until he saved up enough for a lethal dose. Cheeking, just as it sounds, is when you tuck the pill you were supposed to swallow in your cheek so to avoid, avoid being sedated or to save it for later. A short, after a short recovery, he was returned to death row. An automatic appeal for his execution was rejected in March of 1991, and the date of his death was set to be in April 1977. What surprised me was that his daughter, Maxine, who he had put up for foster care right after she was born, as well as his ex-wife Betty would both intervene in the weeks prior to his execution date, arguing that his mental stability needed to be re-examined. Gary was, for the moment, awarded an indefinite stay of execution while two years worth of legal proceedings took place. 
However, on June 3, 1999, after numerous psychological evaluations were made, he was still found to be sane and therefore held fully responsible for his crimes, and he was executed just three days later via lethal injection on July 6 at the Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution Rockview Unit. Two of his survivors have since come out publicly in interviews and in TV specials talking about their experiences of having been held prisoner in a madman's dungeon, never knowing if they were ever going to see sunlight again. And that was it for Gary Heidnick. A carefully measured sequence of chemicals administered to his bloodstream stopped his heart and put an end to his twisted life. Some could argue that his mental issues clouded his judgment and his sense of right and wrong. Like Catherine Knight, we spoke of before, he likely did suffer from a borderline personality disorder, which, simply put, despite knowing what he was doing was wrong, he had the impulse to fulfill his desires, regardless of how depraved and harmful it was to others. It's an oversimplification, but it sort of reminds me of someone with a debilitating gambling habit being stuck in a casino with a pocket full of cash and being told that he's going to jail if he spends a single dollar. He knows it's wrong, and he knows the consequences, but his urge is too strong to resist, or he doesn't bother thinking that far up ahead, and what he wants to do is just within his grasp. Do you blame the gambler, or do you blame the mental condition that drives his so-called need? The gray area between an individual and their mental illness can become hard to differentiate, especially when finding the appropriate punishment for a crime, which is why it seems relatively easy to question his insanity in the weeks prior to his initial execution date. But anyway, if you have any comments or interesting anecdotes about today's subject, I look forward to reading them. Human Deli Podcast at Gmail is where you can reach me, as well as my Human Delicatessen Facebook page. Next week, we're going to go back in time a little further and consider the trail of bodies left in the wake of Charles Starkweather and his young lover, Carol Ann Fugat who over the course of a little under a month killed 11 people in a senseless murder spree that covered two states. If you remember Natural Born Killers, it kind of sounds like another example of Hollywood taking inspiration from true events, doesn't it? Well, life inspires art sometimes. Something to think about. In any case, I hope all of you are taking care of yourself and you're all in good health. Don't take any prescription medication unless your doctor prescribes it to you, and I'll see you to everyone next week at the Human Delicatessen.